The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Spectators broadcast team and each week we choose our favourite pieces from the magazine and ask our writers to read them aloud. Coming up on the podcast this week, Kate Andrews on the NHS and the celebrations that marked its 75th birthday. We hear from Igor Toroni Lalic in Marseille watching with interest as the riots happen around him and Ivo Dornay describes how being related to Boris is cramping his style. First up, Kate Andrews. It's a rare occasion that sees politicians put aside their feuds and rivalries to gather together at Westminster Abbey. These moments are limited to weddings, coronations, funerals, and the National Health Service's birthday. This week, the Prime Minister, the opposition leader, and a sprinkling of royals join together to mark the NHS's 75th anniversary, singing hymns and giving thanks for a system that, according to the latest report, delivers some of the worst outcomes for patients in Europe. The George Cross, presented to the NHS by Queen Elizabeth last year, was brought to the high altar at the start of the service. Rishi Sunak and Keir Stammer gave readings, while Amanda Pritchard briefly traded her title of NHS England's chief executive for honorary vicar as she delivered an address. The Dean's sermon spoke of hope, not a hope in God, but rather the hope that is the NHS. But these public benedictions are increasingly clashing with private despair as politicians come to terms with the many failures of the NHS model. The public policy area in most need of reform is also the one they know they cannot touch. No one will have enjoyed that, says one former health official familiar with preparing ministers for the big birthday celebrations. The praise for our NHS has always looked a little odd. Now it looks delusional. With the NHS England waiting list at a staggering 7.4 million and another round of strikes about to take place, MPs have been hesitant about spouting the usual platitudes about the health service. Still, they went to worship at the Abbey. Who was the service for? It won't do anything for the poor souls waiting for referral appointments or suffering after avoidably late cancer diagnoses. Nor will it help the doctors and nurses subject to the daily strains of an understaffed, bureaucratized system. According to a report published by the Nuffield Trust last week, staff took an accumulated six million days off last year for, quote, anxiety, stress, depression, and other psychiatric illnesses, which increased by 26% between 2019 and 2022. Once, underperformance was blamed on underfunding, but the Tories have made so many cash offerings to the health service gods that NHS funding now stands at record levels, ranking sixth in the OECD's recently published list for healthcare spending across countries. Yet the system's track record for results remains dire. The latest offering is £2.4 billion pledged to increase the NHS workforce over the next 15 years. It may be better targeted than other cash injections in recent memory, but it's not likely to make meaningful inroads into the current crisis. We didn't do things when we had the chance, laments a Tory MP. Not that we ever dared to ask for a mandate to make changes. 
International comparisons show patient outcomes to be mediocre at best. Even the Commonwealth Fund, the outlier study which tends to give the UK a shot at top billing, dropped the NHS from first to fourth in its rankings of 11 countries in 2021. As always, in its health outcomes category, the NHS was at the bottom of the pack. There's a growing sense that something has to give. There are a few brave souls willing to speak up to defy the consensus. This week, former Health Secretary Sajid Javid called for a royal commission to look at other models of healthcare, as he not only calls the current system unsustainable, but blames it for poor patient outcomes. Meanwhile, the Shadow Health Secretary Wes Streeting continues to make a name for himself by taking on, quote, vested interests he spies in the British Medical Association trade union, and by condemning the NHS's deity status, insisting that it is, quote, a service, not a shrine. Some Tories are happy for Streeting and his party to dominate the narrative, for now. We don't want a bunch of Tories out there making this case, says a minister who was pleased to see Tony Blair come out this week to make the case for more private provisions in the health sector. We want to let Labour do it, and then we can row in behind. But others see the danger in allowing Labour to dominate the NHS narrative ahead of the next election, especially as the government looks set to miss its target of cutting the NHS waiting list by the end of the year. Of Sunak's five priorities, tackling inflation and reducing small boat crossings have received the most attention so far. But there's a gnawing feeling that focus will shift to the NHS, and that could be easily exploited by Labour during an election. If I'm Labour, I've got my poster, says another MP. A sick person on a sofa, and a headline that reads, One person in every family on the waiting list. That's the Tory party's NHS. Statistically, they note, that's not far off the truth. Since the NHS's last landmark birthday, celebrated five years ago under Theresa May, the Tory tactic has been to funnel more money into the system. But the cash seems to have failed to make its way to staff pay packages or patient care on the front lines. And even if ministers wanted to continue with the splash the cash model, they will find it increasingly hard to do so as the government's list of non-negotiable spending pledges has been racked up significantly in recent years. There's the support for Ukraine, the new childcare subsidies, and even the simple act of servicing the debt, which adds billions of pounds to the Treasury's bill, thanks to rising interest rates. Already, almost 45% of day-to-day -day public service spending goes on a model of healthcare that is failing both its staff and its patients. Labour knows the problem as well, says a former minister. We all get that the model is broken and has to change. It's just that no one is willing to say it out loud. This won't be solved with worship services for the NHS, but spare a prayer for the patients and staff who will have to keep enduring this until somebody speaks up. That was Kate Andrews. Next is Igor Torondi Lalic. One of the benefits of holidaying during a riot is you feel remarkably safe. Ruffians have no interest in you while they can be having fun at the expense of a much more exciting foe, the police. And besides, there are Lacoste stores to be raided. They have no time for your wallet. The other major benefit is you can get a table anywhere. We had the best seat in France last week, the first floor balcony of La Caravelle, an old school bar overlooking Marseille's historic port and the perfect vantage point for taking in the fine art of French rioting. The choreography unfolded in fits and starts. The police van snaked around the water's edge in military formation outfiled the riot cops, their tessellated body armour making them look like mutant woodlice. 
We spotted a group of skinny masked boys. A wash of smoke, a flash of red, a scurrying of woodlice, then silence. We returned to our pastis. Twenty minutes later, another gust of boys, smoke and cops. The next day, Chez Etienne, one of the great pizza restaurants, unusually crammed, seated us within seconds. Post-coffee, we decided to track down the rioters. From the British newspapers, you'd have thought the Marseille disturbances were impossible to avoid. In fact, they were hard to spot. We did eventually find a thicket of riot cops gathering in the alleyways. For the first time, I sensed unease. The lovely old gun shop opposite Maison Empereur that we'd been admiring earlier in the day had been broken into. A few antique rifles had been pinched, it transpired, but were quickly recovered. Afterwards, I headed back into the centre of town. There was a festive spirit in the air. Sweet old ladies in hijabs handed out masks. Girls lurked excitedly in doorways. And then, through a thin haze of gas, there was a sudden eruption. A hoodied huddle had blowtorched open the metal grill of another store. With a crack, a cheer and a smash, the bodies surged in. Then suddenly a cry went up. The crowd jolted. A scramble began. Everyone ran. The following morning, the rocky beaches were a little emptier, especially of the usual posse of teenage boys who day in, day out throw themselves into the sea. But the town was abuzz with carpenters, glazers and welders patching up the commercial zone. I thought about Bernard Mandeville's The Fable of the Bees from 1714. The philosophical satire argued that we have vice, not virtue, to thank for making the economy were. Might there even be a spike in France's GDP in the coming months? Most bars had shut up shop by the evening as the police and kids played hide-and-seek around the Cours Julien. But we found one open in Noailles with revellers spilling out onto the street. A small army of masked protesters, possibly regrouping, walked through the drunk crowds to a hero's welcome. Everyone clapped, whistled and cheered, though no one had the faintest idea who they were, what they had done or what they were about to do. To come to France and be annoyed at the presence of riots would be like visiting Italy and being furious at the amount of pasta on the menus. That said, even within the rebellious traditions of the French, Marseille and its people are startlingly animated. Eruptions are as authentic a part of the city's soul as the Bouillabaisse. The Parisians I met were petrified by the riots, but Parisians have always treated Marseille as a terrifying alien civilization. Last week's commotion wasn't even close to the most spirited eruption I've encountered in my many years of visiting Marseille. That prize goes to the evening Algeria won the Africa Cup against Senegal in 2019, when the night thundered down on us. The city's population moved as one through the streets, boys dangling off every lamppost and street sign. As a fellow Marseille devotee texted me the other day, they riot in celebration and celebrate in riot. That was Igor Taroni Lalic. And finally, here's Ivo Dornay. Nigel Farage and I don't have too much in common, beyond liking a pint and a cigar, that is. Yet now I discover an umbilical link. We're both peps, or politically exposed persons. Such a handle may not be a total surprise to Nigel, but it certainly was to me, especially as I came to find out from a bank official at the Foreign Currency Exchange Council in the baggage hall of Mexico City's International Airport. 
As I proffered a couple of grubby $100 bills to change to pesos, I filled in a short form, name, address, etc., then noticed the cashier looking quizzically at my passport. Then he called over a supervisor. My passport was analysed by a machine. After a few buzzes, bleeps and whirs, a new form, almost identical to the first, was presented. Then, as I laboriously listed once again the address of my downtown hotel, I noticed at the bottom there had been the addendum of an additional question. Was I a politically exposed person, it asked. Well, as Basil Fawlty's Manuel used to say, K? There was, after all, no explanation of what that actually might mean, no definition of what such a person might look like. Surely anyone bored daily over breakfast by Radio 4's Today programme or a slave to the births and deaths column in the Times might claim to be, at least to some extent, politically exposed. Likewise, anyone who might call themselves a victim of politics and hence exposed, a taxpayer or a soldier, for example, might justifiably claim the soubriquet. Clearly that was not my Mexican friend's line of inquiry. But as a man in his 70s, an OAP pep, perhaps, surely I could not be too much of a threat to the government of President Andres Manuel López Obrador. After all, my $200 was not going to buy too many arms-to-the-teeth banditos, given that they are fearfully tied up with the hideously complex logistics of cocaine trafficking. And I'm not that good on stairs. No, it was obvious this was personal. My passport revealed it. They had got something specifically on me. But what exactly? Well, I thought, I had a great-grandfather who sat for the Liberals under Gladstone. My brother, too, had fought the seat of Edmonton in October 1974 and been duly crushed by the TGWU candidate. Oh, yes, and my wife had been equally humiliated by that pantomime Dane, Anne Widdicombe, when she auditioned for the slapstick role of Member of the European Parliament for South West England for Change UK, or Change UK, as we like to pronounce in the French way, to rhyme with Romange. Oh yes, and for the lack of anything else to do, I was the first and very short-lived director of Best for Britain, another tragicomic effort to put right a political error committed by my misguided brother-in-law in the recent past. But now I was surely innocent, a mere Sunday painter and amateur gardener, more preoccupied with the lack of spring rain than the balance of payments. So it was with confidence that I answered the question with a firm no. A dark frown spread across the manly brow of the supervisor who returned to his computer, perused the data strip in my still burgundy passport one more time, and said with infinite good manners, but brooking no contradiction, I'm afraid our computer says you are. We cannot change your money. And then I finally got it. Yet another fine thing Boris Johnson had got me into. Not only now must I forever shrink my chair at fashionable dinner parties, insisting like Cain, or was it Abel, that I am not my brother's keeper, I must now dodge the money changers in the temples themselves. The sins of the brother-in-law, it seems, will now be forever with me, heaped upon my head at the exchange counters of the globe. Even the usurious clerks of Travelex, the ultimate Pharisees of our times, will decline to do business with me. There will be an assumption that the $200 I proffer has always been snitched from the petty cash tin at the Downing Street front door. Don't worry, said the kindly exchangist, spotting my consternation. We are a government exchange bureau. Any of the ones outside in the arrival hall will happily take your money. 
funny peculiar, really. But I do think that Thomson Reuters, who I hear used to make a tidy profit flogging dog-eared information from their cuttings to the border guards of the world, or perhaps some other free enterprise data snitch, should be accountable. We can legally check our credit ratings, then surely the same should be applicable to our relevant political radioactivity, or is that a state secret not to be shared? All I know is someone seems to have been messing with the data strip in my passport, my soon-to-be-surrendered last link to the long-lost European empire over the sea. That was Ivo Dornay, and that's everything for this week. If you enjoyed these articles, why not pick up a copy of the magazine? I'm Lyndon Cancaran. Thanks for listening, and please do join us again next week. <laughs>